Ryan, my rad boy. Yes. My beautiful, beautiful rad boy. Yes. What have you been up to today? I've been drinking since this morning, celebrating the uh, uh, future presidency of President John Kasich. Oh. Er, I mean, who, who who is it again, Re? Why, it's none other than Delaware's own Joseph R. Joseph Biden. R. Biden. Scranton's own. Scranton's, Scranton's own. The Electric City. Scrappy Joe. Scrappy Joe. But, Ryan, it's not all good news, I have to say. Okay. Yeah. Enlighten me. All right. So, President-elect uh, Biden came out today, and he said within his first 100 days, he's going to sign a, a whole bunch of executive orders. And the first one is going to ban the use of the word red. No! <laughs> Damn big government. Yeah. Thanks, Obama. Welcome back to the Square Podcast. How are we feeling today, boys? Doing okay? All right. Not so bad here. And our very special guest, Town of Cheektowaga Council Member, Brian Nowak. How are you feeling today? Fantastic. You got people out in the streets from uh, from D.C. to Los Angeles celebrating like Saddam was just overthrown. <laughs> How can you not be in a good mood? Right. I mean, there's if there were statues to pull down, they'd be pulling them down. Yep. Yeah, you don't. You think you wouldn't see this in a functional democracy? You know? <laughs> well, it's, you would think we'd bring a fun- functional democracy, right? Yeah, that's a maybe a conversation for another day or today. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Well, Brian, thank you for joining us today. And yeah, today is going to be, I guess our vegetables episodes are a little bit more popular and hell, the election's on everybody's mind and not, of course, Joe Biden's, but Nate McMurray's. So we'll get into that soon. Right. Um, It's vegetable time and we're going to talk about a couple of vegetables that we have to get into. And then we're going to get to the real meat of the uh, conversation, which is more vegetables, which is election day and election recap for us. Um but you know what's re? You know what's worse than macro clusters? Uh, what's that, Jim? Micro clusters. Micro clusters are the worst. Now, do I have to get tested for micro clusters? It depends on which micro cluster you're near. Oh no! So uh, we had uh, our governor, our boy Andrew Cuomo, your boy Andrew Cuomo, mm-hmm. come out and talk about micro clusters in Washington York. What's that all about, Ree? Well. Old uh, Prince Andy, as some people like to call him. No, the governor came out and basically said that Erie County is just infested with COVID. And we might have to take some dramatic steps to reduce it, including microclustering, literally shutting down uh, small portions of even within like certain blocks, I think is is what I, how I read it. Um, to sort of limit the spread of COVID, not to do a wholesale shutdown, but rather a targeted approach to it. See, I thought that COVID was going to disappear as soon as the election was over. Right? That was my understanding. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, don't believe everything you read, Jim. Oh, well, it was on the internet, so it must have been true. Brian, have you had a chance to to read that about the microclustering? Um, I'm still catching up on that. Um, I've been in, uh, on social media through the day. I know that uh, Councilman Flynn from Orchard Park was talking about how um, Orchard Park is getting, there's some areas there that are getting close to that. Uh, I think they're a little over four, getting near that five. Some zip codes are having a hard time. Uh, I think it's a Lovejoy area, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. So um, I think it's like 10 zip codes or something like that. So uh, it's it's a little unnerving because you have it growing that fast. It could be all over the place, and we could be heading towards a situation where we were in early in mid-March. Right. Uh, it's, I mean, um, it's my understanding that the zip codes that are uh, talking about these micro clusters uh, that Cuomo brought up are in the city of Buffalo, the towns of Hamburg, Tonawanda, and Orchard Park. And um, it's a, a total of, what, eight to ten zip codes, Re? I believe so. Um, he also, Cuomo also announced that they're going to look at the data over the weekend and, and come up with a micro cluster strategy. They haven't necessarily said what that's going to look like. So I don't know how many of our listeners are gym goers like me, but I fear that my access to my gym is now going to be cut off. So I am scared. Forget about the larger implications. I just want to get swole. You're going to be cut off from Gainesville. And the gyms, they're not not even at 100% right now, right? I mean, and it took a long time to get those opened. Right. Right, I mean, it's the, they're they're not at one hundred percent, and it, it. I mean, you want to talk about like disease transmission central? The gyms are it, but don't give me that side eye, Jim. <laughs> I wear my mask. I fall. I wipe everything down. I just need to get heckin' swole, dude. So and this is what killed about this. Like you know, when folks are saying wear a mask and nothing's one hundred percent, just wear a damn mask. You got a lot of these small businesses that are going out already. You, you talk about these restaurants; they get to seventy-five percent capacity. For a lot of them, on most days, that's still not making you profitable. You might mm. not even be breaking even. Right. If we could just gotten this under control at the beginning and done what they have, have done in Europe and some other places, South Korea, New Zealand, other places around the world have shown what works. What's nice, uh, and we're sure we're going to get into this, is that. We're going to have some competent leadership in a few months. I mean, say what you will about a stutter or whatever issues. You got generally same people that are that are going to be taking the reins in the end of January. No, absolutely, and uh, it's going to be a nice change of pace to have relatively sane reins uh, leading at things at a national level, as opposed to saying "fuck it," each state does what they want. Yeah, absolutely, and I will say that. Governor Cuomo did say that he blamed the people of Western New York for failing to follow his edicts regarding face coverings and holding gatherings uh, and local officials for failing to enforce them. So, I mean, I'm going to take him at his word. I will say that I do believe that local officials here, I think, have been pretty aggressive about it. Um, Brian, do you have any thoughts? I mean, I know you're a local elected official. I know you're certainly on top of it. Do you think there's any more that we could be doing here or, you know, what's going on? What I could speak to is what we're doing on the the 
municipal government end of it, like town workers and town facilities and things like that. You know, we've made sure that the, the workers in the town have got their masks. Uh, in the isolated cases where we've had to deal with that, we've dealt with it. We've put up all sorts of sneeze guards, the, the plexiglass, these other things in the buildings, new procedures. I think on that end, we're doing a great job. Uh, like any municipality, like like any city, town, what have you, you know, you're going to have the occasional birthday party, gathering some things that might be a little larger than than uh, than it should be. But you have to deal with that stuff on a case by case basis. And I think uh, I think we've drawn a good middle ground here between uh, you know public health and uh, making sure that. Uh, uh, it's, it's, I don't know how to phrase it otherwise. I think we've done a good job on it. You know, yeah. it's it's hard it's hard to draw a hard fast line and say you know break up your party, do this and that. You, you know, some folks you got to give a warning, and there's there's things you do. But from my end, what I'm seeing in Chicktawaga, we're doing a generally good job. For sure, and that's awesome. And it's so tough because we just hit, unfortunately, a really bleak milestone here. We hit. 385 daily cases as of uh, today, Saturday, the, uh, was it today, the 7th? Yeah, uh, November 7th. So, I mean, I know that there are a lot of folks who are doing everything that they can. Uh, do more, do more, or do less, <laughs> really don't. Maybe I should stop going to the gym. Maybe we should stop doing some of these things. Or if you are, please follow the guidelines. Please wear your mask. Please use your hand hand sanitizer. Right. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Are you trying to tell me I can't lick other people's hands anymore? Well, I mean, you can lick my hands, but that's because they're covered in uh, sugar. Deal. Deal. You know, with, with this whole thing, uh, you, you see the numbers, the data, all the information, and it's different than anecdotal information. Uh, friends, you may know that have it, family and all that, and... The reason these numbers are concerning me more than anything is that I'm hearing more folks close to me, you know, that have symptoms that actually have COVID. And we've obviously done the social distancing and, you know, we're not together or anything like that. But I'm hearing more and more folks that I know well saying that they've got symptoms or they've actually gotten COVID. So that just confirms that, you know, this this thing is ramping right back up uh, to where we were in the end of March. Right. I mean, it's 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 to the point now that I, I believe I read. Uh, I I know I read. I don't have to believe it, but I I, I read something uh, recently that one in four Americans knows somebody personally that had had COVID. It was had a positive test, um, and yeah, I mean, I know I know somebody who had a positive test for COVID. Um, so you know, at least that's one out of three here, and that's if the rest of you guys don't know anybody. Um, but. Uh, it is ramping up. Um, it's not going away, despite what maybe some of the conspiracy theorists may have said it was going to happen once election day it was, passed. Well, it was supposed to go away when the election was over. I'm sorry to cut you off, Jim, but it was supposed <laughs> to go away when the election was over. Right, I yeah. mean, what do you do to deal with these people? I, I want to get on my soapbox for a second. You think that, that a global virus is a conspiracy theory? And and you don't vote those people out of office. They're still all over the place. They are. No, the next year after year, it's utter lunacy, man, that we can't even get consensus on a public health issue that it exists. 
No, you're one hundred percent right. That I mean, this is something like you know when I, I had a, a a friend of my mother's was like, well, it's going to disappear as soon as the election's over, and I was like, you know what's really great about this is how Europe is really sold out for the election. Yeah, they're just really in the bag with this COVID thing for us. They're mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're truly pulling it down for us. So thank you, the rest of the free world, for uh, faking COVID so that we could get Joe Biden elected. Th- thanks for that. But speaking of uh, of faking things, Re, what's going on with Nate McMurray's Twitter, our, our boy Nate McMurray? Well, Jim, I was going to talk about something arguably even more depressing than the COVID numbers. <laughs> oh, and that's our beautiful baby boy Nate McMurray is deep deep in his feelings after a very tough loss. Yeah. And I come here not to bury Nate McMurray. I I truly don't No, Honestly, by the end of all this, I've, I think I've said it before on the pod. I've come full circle. I, I truly and earnestly was, was rooting for Nate to be successful. If only to get that fucking asshole Jacobs out of there. Mm -hmm. Um, He did not do it. And he, Unfortunately, did not do it. We'll we'll get more into the results, but this one merits a special discussion, especially with how Nate is sort of melting down. But he did not do it in somewhat uh, spectacular fashion, Jim. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talked about you gave him better odds than I did uh, on our pre-election forecast, and because you talked about how close it was on election day uh, or on the, pre- the special, special election. election special election day, and. Um, you know, I was kind of dismissive of his chances. Well, for the first time in my life, I was right about something, um, about being dismissive about Nate's chances because, man, it's and, – and Brian, you know this too. You know, like, he got thrashed in Erie County, and he needed to win Erie County to have a chance because of, you know, because of Genesee County, Wyoming County, Orleans, those those other counties out there were going to go towards Jacobs anyways. He needed to win Erie County and win it pretty handily. And he got he got pretty handily thrashed in Erie County. Um, and with losing Erie County like he did, I know the outstanding absentee ballots are going to lean Democrat or, or maybe you know more than lean Democrat. They might be very heavily Democrat, but he's still going to lose. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking at the Erie County Board of Elections and the State Board of Elections numbers, and these are numbers without the absentee. It's breaking down two to one. So for every two votes, Jacobs is getting, Nate's getting one. And you're 62-33 at the state website. If you go to Erie County's website, it's 62-36. I don't see how you make that up with the absentee ballots, especially dealing with the Glow Counties. Um, I... the absentees are going to break Democrat in Erie, Niagara, and uh, the portion of Monroe that's in the district. But those blow counties, if it's 50-50, you're not making enough inroads to to get to that total. And, you know, this will get us to another issue that we're going to talk about with the presidential race. But, you know, the way they do these the, – the counting in these races, um, there's a Republican and Democrat at every table. The machines are sealed. There's no reason to think that ballots are just going to magically appear and, and swing the outcomes of these elections. That's another one of these lunatic conspiracy theories that get thrown out there, you know. But I just want to lay that on the table right now, you know. That if you are a listener that it's in Erie County or New York State, you know, I've personally overseen the election counting process. I know how this stuff works. I, you know, these things are not rigged. I, I I actually worked for the board of elections for two years, 
And so I, I can tell you with 100% confidence that the things are not rigged. I mean, it's like you said, it's a Republican and Democrat doing everything step in step. So you would, you would need and, and you're party loyalists if you're working at the Board of Elections. Those are not people who just happen to be a registered Democrat or registered Republican who happen to get a job there. Uh, it's, you don't apply and get a job there off the street. So I'm going to give you gentlemen some selected readings from Nate's Twitter feed from the past 24 hours. Oh, let's hear it. So this was tweeted out 21 hours ago. I just finished reading The Outsiders with my kid. Essie Cup. Even more poignant is our anointed spineless congressman takes his throne. And he did spell throne wrong. He spelled it T-H-R-O-W-N. It's more, it's telling, not spelling, Nate. Well, it's, it's Twitter. Let's give him a pass on that. Okay, we'll give him a pass. Yeah. He's, he's in his feelings still. Mm-hmm. All right. Somebody tweeted at Nate. Let me, let me see if I had it here. Somebody asked him, Nate, how did your race go? And he quote tweeted his response, pretty good. In 20 years, my kids will be proud of me. Look how I strut but I'm pretty darn sure the guy I ran against cries every time he looks in the mirror. Ask him if you can find him. That's some strong energy right there. So Nate is accusing Congressman-elect uh, Jacobs of crying in the mirror. Jim, does that track? I mean, you know, for what I know of Congressman Jacobs, I don't think he cries in the mirror very often. Uh, his family owns the Bruins. Uh, they've got more money than God. Uh, if he does anything in the mirror, it's not a peer because he might be a vampire. It reminds me <laughs> of that Simpsons bit where um, I think it was Bart asked, who, who's the John Claude Van Damme-like guy in the Simpsons? Oh, I- and they ask him, like, how do you sleep at night? And he says, on piles of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that's just how I imagine how Chris Jacobs it helps. Goes to bed at night. Okay. Oh, this, oh, this is a good one. I promise. Here, here we go. 20 hours ago. Yeah. Just to give you a time. We're recording this at about 745 uh, Eastern here on Saturday. So these, these came flying in Friday night uh, a little late. A little late for Nate, maybe. When I was a paper boy as a kid, there was this dog. Gnarly looking thing. I'd play catch with him. But one day I turned for a second and he bit a hole in the seat of my pants Teeth right in my buttocks. I roared. He whimpered and ran. And I never turned my back on him again. Brian, as an elected official, have you ever had a dog (laughs) bite your buttocks? (laughs) Has this come up for you? I've been bitten by a dog once in my life. Not in my buttocks. Too close to comfort to a different region. Oh, Yeah, we'll just leave it there. You know, I shouldn't have ran. You know, that that's what would happen. If I had just walked, dog would have been fine. I ran, got the dog excited, dog caught me. You should have roared. I got I've been uh, bitten by a dog in the arm one time. I was wearing yeah. a leather jacket and oh, good so, for you. Yeah, so the dog bite didn't go through the leather jacket. And it just kind of clumped it, down on my arm. But it was a uh, it was a Rottweiler and it just it stuck on my arm like I was uh like, like I was a, a training dowel for them. 
So uh, when I was young, two two uh, hornets flew up my shorts and started stinging me. I'm wondering if that counts. <coughs> was it Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning? Yes. <laughs> okay, last one because we're I'm we're truly not here to roast Nate and no. and frankly, you know, I I do feel bad for him. But here here's a, the last selection. Seven hours ago, so we had some time to. Well, I won't say sober up, but you know, finish drinking his milk from the night before and let it digest. Um, but here's the tweet. I've been so disappointed. I've been angry at even some of my family and friends. I couldn't believe the hate, the fear. Joe Biden is saying he can unite us. I pray he can. I'll tell you what. I'd even give Chris Collins a big hug if he was here. Let's do it. One America. Heal. What do you think, Jim? Would you give Chris Collins a big hug if he were here? Oh. <laughs> Only if I was covered in tape and he was covered in $100 bills. <laughs> Which, as far as what I know of Chris Collins, he's always covered in $100 bills. Yeah. yeah. Brian, have you ever been on the wrong side of an election? And, and what have you sort of done to, to deal with that grief if you have? Clearly, Nate's going through it and uh, needs some help. With my name on the ballot, no, not yet. Um, I've been very fortunate to, you know, if not coming in first place, to to win a spot in every contest I've run in, whether it's as a delegate or primaries or generals or councilmen. But um, I don't know. I'm kind of pessimistic. I mean, the night that I came in first place in the primary four years ago for councilmen, uh, I didn't go to the party, the Democratic Committee's watch party because I figured I was going to lose. I ended up getting the most votes. I went to go get dinner. I actually got a call from our party chairman to say, hey, you got to get down here. You're not just doing well. You're running away with this thing, you know? Not his exact words, but something to that effect. So um, I guess the way I deal with it is, you know, ceaseless pessimism. <laughs> what, would you, what would you advise Nate in, in his hour of need here? He's really down in his feelings. Anything, any words, any pick-me-up you got for him? You know, it, it's different for every person, and you know, I don't want to beat up on him. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, as far as his Twitter feed and social media use, it's it's unconventional, and it's not the approach that I would take. But, you know, you've got to get people to to buy into you and your story. I mean, that's a big part of winning these kind of races. You know, it's not about all about policy or all about personality. It's a blend of that. So, I mean... It seems like this this approach has had success in the past of, uh, for lack of a better term, bleeding on stage, you know, throwing it all out there, giving it 110 percent. But I don't know. Um, no, I, I agree I, with I, I agree with you. I mean, he's running in a difficult district. You know, as I mentioned on the on the pre-election one, it's the, the Republican district that or the congressional district he's running in is the most Republican one in, in New York state. So if he's going to win, if he wanted to have a chance to win, he's going to have to do stuff that might be outside the normal playbook because he's going to have to draw attention to himself in a way that just running your normal campaign just would not do and, and would not be able to pull the, that kind of numbers. I mean, I think with any candidate, you know, and he's probably gone through this already and, and accepted loss. I mean, it's you're not entitled to anything, you know? Like, mm -hmm. 
put your name up in front of the voters. And this isn't against just Nate personally. It really isn't. It's just for any candidate for any office. You're not entitled to the seat. It's not your seat. And at some point, the voters say, hey, you got to go. I mean, you, they're your boss. You leave. You right. Know? Well, speaking of leaving, speaking of the voters being a boss, um, in Erie County, they went the same way as apparently the nation did. Um, so far in Erie County, and now absentees haven't been counted, if that's correct, um, but uh, Joseph R. Biden won 51.8% of the vote to Donald J. Trump's 46.5% of the vote with Howie Hawkins and Joe Jorgensen and Brock Pierce following up and, and getting some of the vote. Um, you got to add Kanye West. And Kanye. <laughs> Kanye West beat Howie Hawkins in a few states. No way. <laughs> Yeah, Arkansas is one wow. of them. I believe Mississippi, too. Wow. wow. This is, well, the states where you can just purchase your way onto the ballot, right? I think so. I, I didn't look. I was just looking state by state because, you know, just for uh, shits and giggles, I checked Vermont, and uh, Hawkins beat um, West, but only by, like, a few dozen votes. I mean, they both had, like, 1,200, 1,300 votes, something like that. It was close. That's that's amazing. That's great. All right. Uh no, Joe Biden, um, and this is just early voting and election day voting, got 198,808 votes in Erie County to Trump's 178,349 votes. Although some controversy, right? There was there was some discrepancy between AB and what Erie County Well, reported. what was going on is, as far as I understand it, maybe Brian, maybe you know better than I do, but what I understand is that uh, the AP and... Uh, the NPR was looking at the State Board of Elections website, and for some reason, the State Board of Elections website was showing incorrect numbers based off of Erie County. Because right. um, I, I remember I was driving on election night, and I heard that uh, Fr- Frank Todaro was beating John Rivera for common <laughs> count or for state assembly based off of the State Board of Elections. And I, I almost pulled my car over because I could not believe that that was actually true. Um, and as soon as I checked the numbers, I checked the Erie County Board of Elections website, and Rivera was winning like 60-40. And I was like, well, <laughs> how can the State Board be so off? But it, the State Board sounded like they were way off uh, leaning Republican all the way across the board. Yeah, I, I did. See, I saw a graphic uh, showing Erie County... Um, light red um that was from the ap and maybe they weren't putting the early voting in at the state board of elections site i couldn't tell you exactly why but i see why they were talking about the tataro race that way you know you look at the early voting uh rivera won that three to one but the the, the night of voting was a lot closer you know it's a uh, 13 and change to 11 and change right so that that might maybe that's what we're talking about is that the, the day of voting was being counted by the board of elections and the early voting was being excluded um, because the, the early voting was heavily democratic. Brian, I've been on a social media fast, uh, and I broke, I broke it. I, I, I had to do it. I had to know what was going on for this election. And I saw that, that graphic of Erie County turned red and I couldn't help but tweet out <laughs> Jeremy Zellner needs to be rode out on the rails. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> like like Principal Skinner in The Simpsons. <laughs> I since retract my statement. Uh, but was there, I know there wasn't too much drama about Buffalo and Erie County turning red for this election, but there's still a lot of Trump voters in the area. I mean, what do we, what do we make of that? 
I, you can attribute it in part to party realignment. I really think we're starting to undergo that. And one of the fears I have, and we're going to run into this problem, we being Democrats, is that you know the, the middle class is looking for a party. The middle class, the upper middle class, it used to be the Republican Party. And the Republican Party has decided to throw its lots in um, with authoritarians, basically. So you've got that middle class that actually likes democracy shifting over to the Democrats. And the Democrats, and this has been going on for 20 years now, are not you can argue back to the 70s, but especially the last 20 years, aren't meeting the needs of the working class in, in the way that they used to. You know, They're scared of the New Deal. Um, the minimum wage is still 725 so You can go on and on and say what you will about the, uh, the, the Republicans holding back on that. But I think part of that's a realignment. Some of these folks that went to Trump uh, that used to be registered Democrats, they're going to stay there. And you know, they may keep their party registration because of New York's closed primary system. And in a town like Chictawaga or Tonawanda, the primary is the election. So right. you might have conservatives register Democrats so they can, you know, cast their vote in every race uh, and, and, have, and maximize the voice, you know. Um, so looking at the Biden numbers, you think we'd go back to a situation like Barack Obama in 8 and 12, and it's looking closer to Hillary's performance. So towns like Chictawaga, where Trump actually won four years ago, I haven't seen the breakdowns yet. But if you told me that he... Uh, that, that Biden only won by two or three points, I'd believe it right now. I doubt that it's actually the case, but this is a town where you have two, about twenty nine to 30,000 registered Democrats for about 12,000 registered Republicans. So the fact that Trump won four years ago with that massive Democratic registration advantage uh, is kind of amazing. No, I, I, and I agree, and I wouldn't be surprised to find out that you know a, a town like Lancaster, which is like you know, 52, 46 or 44 uh, registration Democrat over Republican. If once the numbers turned out, if it went Republican, if it went for Trump again this year, um, like it did four years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and you we'll get a council race out there. So um... right with and, and there was a council race out here, um, which did go Democrat, um, although it was closer than I expected. Um, and ended up being like 52, 48. And, you know, Don Kaczewski, who is the Republican candidate um, against Mike Wozniak, you know, Don has run, this is like her third election in a row. Um, she's been a loser every single time. She hasn't done anything to gain additional votes, except she got closer this time. And, you know, maybe part of that is running a lot, but part of that is just turnout for the Republicans. Yeah, say what you will about President Trump, but... He really did something about getting urban voters and and, and folks that uh, didn't want to see Democrats win in the suburbs to really show up for him. Yeah. No, he definitely got suburban voters to turn out. Um, and, you know, it just mattered how they turned out for him in, in certain districts, you know, in, in, in certain parts of the country, like Philadelphia, the suburban voters turned out against him. In certain parts of the country, like Buffalo, the suburban voters turned out for him. So Brian, yeah, I, oh sorry, go I don't ahead. know what the turnout looked like in the city, um, or, or in city of Buffalo, or even Niagara Falls or Lackawanna. But I mean, if you look at other parts of the country where just voter turnout was incredibly high, you go back, 
the highest it's been about 100 years. I think it was compared to 1900, the election of 1900. Uh, so I, I have to imagine city of Buffalo turnout has been much higher than usual. It's just turnout was higher everywhere. So right. a lot more Democrats in the city voting, but that's getting offset by the conservatives and the Republicans in other places. Well, and Brian, I was going to say, I mean, surely you told your constituents in, in various ways to get out the vote. But I think what we've seen from this election is that when you say get out the vote, that means everybody's coming out to vote. And I think there was an assumption that, myself included, that higher turnout would mean Donald Trump loses by bigger margins. And that hasn't been the case. And I think we're seeing that here even locally. Well, I mean, he, he lost. He's going to lose the popular vote. He's going to end up losing the popular vote by a big margin. Right. Uh, I think uh, if I last time I checked, I got the Guardian up here. I think uh, Trump was down in the popular vote for 4.1, 4.3 million. He's going to lose that by five to six million votes. Mm-hmm. I mean, as they count these absentees, like we said, in New York, they're skewing heavily Democratic. They're not even done counting Pennsylvania, these other places. When you had when you had the president himself saying mail voting was fraud, don't vote, don't use that method, go in on election day, he kind of kneecapped himself on this side of things. Right, absolutely. I mean, he prevented any of the mail-in votes being for him because he was like, well, no, it's fraudulent. Um, so the people who did use mail-in votes were going to be Democrats. Um, and, you, yeah, I mean... Uh, I don't know for certain, but I, I don't think California started their mail-in vote counting either. And it, you know, if if New York State's going to have hundreds of thousands of votes that lean towards Biden, same thing with California, except for just a, a larger volume. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about let's let's move on from the congr- uh, presidential election, and we'll talk about state supreme court. Um, Amy Martocci seems to have won election re-election to the state supreme court over jerry greenan but again um at least in erie county the day of voting skewed republican why 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 might that be i've heard for many years all sorts of different historical reasons and punchlines and things but what do you guys think why is it that maybe a day of election where you'll see republican turnout on the day be higher hmm. i mean i think i think part of it is that you know um democrats were engaged and they want to make sure their vote was counted so they voted early the, those who weren't going to mail-in vote were voting early and i do think that there was a lot of democrats who were going to mail-in vote because they weren't turned off by mail-in voting be, despite the president's messaging so I think that left Republicans the only option of if they weren't going to er, vote early and they were going to vote by mail, well, then there's only one day that they can vote, right? Yeah, Brian, what was the turn? Uh, did you have a chance to see in your neck of the woods what the early voting was? Because uh, down here, like I know in Kenmore, certainly there were long lines, huge. ridiculous lines. I know Tonawanda had a similar experience. Were there early voting poll sites up your way and, and what did you see if so yeah the way it worked in erie county uh was that each of the towns had a single polling site and the city of buffalo had one in each uh council district uh in the town of chitawaga we had voting at our senior center and we had lines there every day the first day people were lining up over an hour early and you know right to the end people were lining up near the end of each day 
you know, you can get in and out within 15 minutes or so, but it was, it was utilized pretty well. I mean, looking at the early votes, at least in the assembly race here between Chituaga and Lancaster, it looks like there were well over 20,000 votes cast and the Chituaga portion of the district is maybe 60 to 70% of the voters. Mm-hmm. And let's say more like 60, give or take a few. So a lot, that's a majority that's from Chituaga. So that gives you a sense of how many people took advantage of it. And those get counted as absentee ballots. Is that right? No, they get counted as early vote ballots now. Early vote ballots now. So the, the, there's a difference between it goes early voting, regular day voting, and then absentee. Absentees aren't counted until at least a week after the election. Yeah, this early vote drops right at 9 o'clock, and then we're waiting until later on in the evening for the Erie County Board of Elections to update its numbers. So we knew what what it was looking like right at the beginning. And as expected, you looked at some of these races, the Democrats were doing really well uh, on that early vote. The day of vote coming in, you know, that's where Republican candidates were narrowing their losses or, or doing what they could to build leads. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of, like, we're going to get to, uh, right now, the 26th Congressional District, um, nothing for the Republicans on the day of the board, day of the election. Um, just a continued loss, uh, as far as it went, um, with Higgins over Ricky Donovan. Um, nothing to be, nothing unexpected there. Just, you know, very simply, Ricky Donovan's just running to, to lose um, to make sure that they have somebody on the ballot for that congressional race. And Higgins just runs away with it, taking like 70% of the vote. Yeah, he, uh, I'm looking at the State Board of Elections. There's like 62% or something like that. Donovan got th- 30. So, yeah, I mean, after you count these absentees and that, you're right, about, you know, 70% there. Mm-hmm. Some neighborhoods. Yeah, and Brian Higgins obviously has been an institution of local politics. He's done some good things around here, some things, you know, I'm not a huge fan of at times, but let me ask you this. With that kind of margin, I know a lot of people, and rightfully so, get upset about gerrymandering and districts being drawn in weird ways to help the incumbents. Have we seen with Brian's district over the years, has that been the gift of gerrymandering? Because I remember circa, was it 2004 when he ran against Nancy Naples? That was a hard-fought race. What is a little backstory to explain how in 2020 he's winning 70 30. Well, I mean, I will say part of it is, yeah, I mean, in 2004, that's that seat had been districted for Jack Quinn, former Congressman Jack Quinn, which meant that it was uh, Chautauqua County and like Southern Erie County um, combined. So it was, it was very close um, it was probably still a Democrat enrollment advantage, but it was close enough that somebody like Jack Quinn, who was always endorsed by unions as a Republican, could win it. Um, once it turned over and Higgins won that race against Naples, um, Chautauqua County has been since then districted out of it, and it's all Erie County as far as I can tell. Right, it's all it's all an Erie County district centered around the city of Buffalo and uh, in Niagara Falls. Right, and you got the other towns that are included, but that's the heart of the district uh, is the two cities. I just think it's very interesting to see with redistricting how what at one point was a contested district 
has become just an accepted, yep, right, slam dunk. We're not even going to try to challenge him. What are we going to see? Because I know this election had many, many big implications. And just taking this a little bit broader for a second. But I understand that we're going to have redistricting come up after 2020. What are we seeing? Are we going to see potentially any big changes in this area with the redistricting? Well, we, we might with the 27th district. Um, you know, I mean, like I said earlier, that's the most Republican district in, in New York State. Um, the one that Nate just lost. Um, one that we're going to get to in a second or two with the, the Jacobs turnout, where Jacobs won about 63% of the vote in Erie County um, to Nate's 37%. Um, but um, you're talking about a district that could be redistricted. I mean, it could be conceivable that it could be re- redrawn so that um, Jacobs and Tom Reed live in the same district. And drawn in such a way that uh, to force them into a primary. And that wouldn't be it wouldn't be the most surprising thing that I would, I'd, I've heard of if, if that happened. But you got to remember that not that long ago, this was seen as a competitive district. Kathy Hochul was the member of Congress from this district before she was lieutenant governor. Yeah, no, it's redistricting and gerrymandering. What, however you feel about it, it, it has pretty huge implications for how these districts look, what turnout looks like, and ultimately how we're represented. Brian, do you, I'm sure you have some thoughts on gerrymandering, of course, but I mean, even on a, a local level or a larger level, what should we be feeling going forward? I know we're looking at 2020 with the, the big redistricting, right? Yeah, I mean, at least in New York, I think uh, we're doing a relatively decent job here. There's a lot of things you got to consider. Um, you know, you've got pockets, whether it's in the city, whether it's in the cities or in other areas where there are, there are various minority populations that uh, deserve to have a chance in getting some representation. So you've got to consider that in drawing the lines. Um, you want to keep towns and cities contiguous and you see this especially with the state senate and the state assembly. I think we do a relatively good job on that, and that kind of limits options. But you go look at places like North Carolina, where they've used redistricting in such a way to where they're you're getting fifty fifty on the vote, and the Republicans are getting you know eleven eleven out of thirteen, ten out of thirteen seats. So, I mean, Democrats have got a strong registration advantage in New York. So of course they're going to keep a lock on the assembly and. More often than not, they're going to break even or, or be able to control the state Senate. Um, it, it, so as far as the, there's all sorts of plans and ideas and things you can do on redistricting. Um, but, you know, until we get independent district or doing something like multi-member districts or, or what any of these various plans, you know, you're going to have a situation to where well, to a certain extent – um, political parties and, and elected officials can choose their voters. You just hope that there's always someone watching over that and vetting it, and there's independent people involved to to prevent egregious abuse. No, certainly. And Jim, what other big election results do we have? I know you mentioned the Jacobs turnout, as we alluded to earlier. Our boy Nate just got he got hit with the hammer pretty hard. Yeah, I mean. Um... You know, 
unlike you know most of the other districts, uh, like Brian and I were talking about, um, the early voting turned out Jacobs was winning early voting, um, which was a really bad sign. As soon as nine o'clock hit and the early voting numbers got dumped, and Jacobs was winning anyways, that was a real bad sign for Nate McMurray. Um, that the early voting turned out that Jacobs was going to win. Um, and then once the day of voting came out, um, day of voting, it was 52,857 for Jacobs in Erie County to 19,424 for McMurray. Just an absolute crush. Is this a, do we think this is a Trump coattail effect where the voters that riled up and worried about the uh, socialist Nate McMurray coming to take over. What what do we think? Because that's a that's a pretty big margin, honestly, for a candidate who had a puncher's chance in that heavily Republican special election. I think there's a lot of things going on there. You've got first off, you've got that is Chris Jacobs, and he's been perceived for the most part as a relatively moderate Republican. You, he's got name recognition. He was able to fund his own campaign. Uh, he wasn't under felony indictment, unlike uh, 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 Chris Collins. Uh, on top of that, Nate's run the race once before, so voters got a sense to know who he was and and to reflect on that. Um, then you then you have the Trump effect. You know, the Trump himself and the kind of mailers and advertising that was going out there. The the messaging on defund the police. In New York, there was a lot of stuff hitting Assembly and Senate candidates on cashless bail. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that's going to depress the vote or swing it around. I mean, people were really upset about this cashless bail thing. I had I think it had a significant impact on the margins in some of these elections. So that played a role, too. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I would say if any particular um, topic had an impact in in local elections in New York state this year, it would be a cashless bail. Um, it was something that the Republicans really hammered on and something the Democrats didn't try to defend, didn't come up with ways to defend it. They just kind of ignored it and hoped that it went away. I mean, I, I don't know how you tell people you, you know, you have to defend the entire bill of rights. And if you read the eighth amendment, it's pretty plain that what we've done with the bail system was starting to, lead to abuses of that you know do you guys know what the seventh amendment is the, the Ooh, seventh, seventh you're asking amendment. the wrong group of guys brian <laughs> seventh amendment basically says that if uh it's a, a certain uh crime or issue involving more than twenty dollars it gets to go to a jury trial it's not the exact words but it's basically the spirit of it i mean for that to be one of the amendments in the bill of rights something that particular and specific you know the the founders and the framers were really concerned about limited government criminal justice issues and making sure that the accused were not just being locked away forever. So the fact mm -hmm. that we've allowed the bail system to get as insane as we did in this state and that we needed to to do things like uh, like this bail reform to start clawing it back to a degree um, really say something first off. And, and it's hard for a Western New York Democrat to, to go out and forcefully defend this compared to somebody that might live in New York City. You know, they, they saw the issue differently. But right. it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like the same thing, like like abortion rights. We dealt with that in my district or somebody was mailing out, you know, anti-choice uh, nonsense. And, you know, the majority of voters support Roe. And the majority of voters don't want to see people locked up with excessive bail. It's just the thought and the perception of what excessive bail is 
is shifting and changing. It wasn't well-defined, and you found one or two cases of somebody that you know, got arrested two or three times in a day, and then all of a sudden that's the flyer. They're not talking about how, by and large, cashless bail is actually working. Of right. course it's not a perfect thing. Take the good that's from there, make the changes you need to, and then work on it from there. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the big takeaway, and, and thank you, Brian, for that explanation, because that's great. And I think my biggest takeaway is something like that. You have to be proactive and you have to really be on the aggressive and explain why you're in support of it. Because I think with a lot of candidates that I saw in this election cycle, they got caught on their heels and they didn't necessarily come out and be proactive about their support more of a half-hearted, Oh yeah, I support cashless bail, but without and I know you have limited air time and, you know, you get an advertisement or something to cement yourself in the voter's mind, but to come out and come out swinging and say, yeah, if you look at the bill of rights, this is what it intends. I think that's a much more effective strategy. Even I, I don't think Nate really had a chance <laughs> captain hindsight here, but I don't think he had a chance, but I do think that, being forward facing with it instead of being hit punched at it, it could have given given him more of a fighter's chance with that. Right. In, in, in my particular framing might not be the way to do it. You know, I would concede that I'm given a scholarly approach to it. And I, what we've seen in the last four years, at least with the Trump administration is, you know, it just took a massive shit on the bill of rights. They didn't care about this stuff. So you got to wonder, you know, do a majority of the voters actually care about the idea of, of the accused having rights sincerely? Are, are they thinking of it in a philosophical sense? I'd like to believe so. Um, but if, if it's not that messaging, you've got to do something to combat it. Even if it's, hey, it was in the budget and I voted for the budget because of X, Y, Z items mm -hmm. or, you know, there were discovery reforms, too, and we needed that stuff or here's what's wrong with cashless bail. I'm going to put in changes to it and make it work like this. Something instead of ignoring it, you had to combat it somehow. No, I agree. 100% is that I think that the, the danger that, and you know, hopefully some of the local Democrats learn from it is that just ignoring the criticisms of cashless bail um, did not work with voters. I think that, you know, we'll talk about one election we th that we think went the wrong way and a couple of elections that might have been closer than they should have been. Um, let's talk about the state Senate right now. We can talk about the 59th district in about four seconds. That's Pat Gallivan versus J Jason Klemek. Um, I mentioned on our pre-broadcast that I live in that district and I have no idea who Jason Klemek is. Um, I voted for him. I still have no idea who the fuck he is. <laughs> no, no, no mailers, no nothing. No mailers, nothing. Um, wow. I'm, I mean, I'm a prime dem out there. Um, Gallivan didn't even do any mailers, and I, you know, my father's a prime Republican, my mother's a prime Republican, my mother's a Republican elected official in the town of Lancaster, and didn't get any mailers from Gallivan or and nothing from Climic. Uh, my sister's a prime dem out there in the village of Lancaster. She got no mailers from him. Just nothing came out in that election whatsoever. So it's unsurprising that it went 73-27. Uh, 27% is apparently the lowest amount of votes you'll get in running against Pat Gallivan, no matter what you do. That's the basement. 
That's that's the bottom twenty seven percent. That's all we need to talk about the fifty ninth, the sixtieth though. Um, that is uh, your boy and mine, Sean Ryan, running against Joshua Mertzloft. Um, that's to replace Chris Jacobs in the state senate, and um, you know, as of election day and the the districts that reported, uh, Sean Ryan won that about fifty seven to forty three. Again, surprisingly. Election day totals, Josh Mertzliff had more votes on election day than Sean Ryan did. Now, yeah, looking at the early vote, I would have, if you asked me to guess that, I would have said, eh, you know, Mertzliff was probably going to get more votes than Ryan, but not by much. I mean, you look, it, it's Sean Ryan banked 17,000 votes in early voting. No, it doubled. It was doubled. He had 35 to 17 just in the early voting. So the Dems really showed up. I mean, it's it's good that he kind of held his own at the end. He didn't fall too far behind there. And that's uh, even with the absentees and all the other outstanding, he's going to win the race. Right. I mean, he's going to win the race going away. Um, it's going to end up being a 62-38 type of uh, turnout once the absentees are counted. Brian, with the early voting, and we talked about it here on the show before, but this is clearly unprecedented. Obviously, with COVID, we live in a whole new reality. But what are the chances we could continue this going forward? I mean, I think early voting has been nothing but a net good for people to not have to try to plan their schedules around getting to the polls or as we saw this year with the U.S. Postal Service having concerns that their ballot would be counted in the mail. I mean, what do you think that this is just the model going forward that we have early voting? I, I think it's going to be a permanent thing. You see it happening in more and more states. And this is the first time this year that Erie County ran early voting in a presidential race. I know there's a lot of folks criticizing you know, the, the how long places were open, how many there were, but... Niagara County, I think they only had two sites. And under the state election law, you only need one location for every 50,000 people or so. What we did here in Erie was um, I think it's a good place to start from. If you ask me to decide to design an early voting system from scratch, knowing what the, the budgetary resources were, I propose roughly the same thing that Erie County has done. Um, so the fact that you've got to invent something in a sense I think it ran pretty well, and I'm a critic critic on a lot of things. I think our election law, in a lot of ways, is a disaster. But we're we're getting in the right direction with this early voting. Um, you know, we've got no excuse absentee. There's there's a lot of things that are good that are going on there, and it's going to be a permanent staple. Yeah. Uh, Brian, let's talk about the 61st district for the state senate. Um, that was uh, Jackie Berger versus Ed Rath. Um, I was kind of a critic on our. Uh, our pre-game, our pre-election show with how much money the Democrats are spending in that district. Um, that had been Mike Ranshofer's district for a long time um, until he decided to retire this year. And I thought that the Democrats might be throwing money on a race that could have been better spent elsewhere. Um, I don't want to say it was proven right by the results that came out from the election, um, but it's a 59-41 um, once the absentee ballots are counted, which we know are going to skew Democrat, it's going to end up being closer to like 56-44. But it's still not going to be that close for an election where, you know, maybe some of that money could have been spent in the 143rd. 
Got, I, I think two years ago, um, the Democratic challenger there got within 10 points, maybe even less, towards winning the district. And just looking at – I'm looking at the State Board of Elections site and just Genesee, the numbers they've got here. Uh, RAF took 71 percent of the vote. Right. And so that's hard to overcome. I mean it's not – there's – there's of all the registered voters in the district, it looks like maybe 15% of them are in Genesee. But he's starting with that kind of lead, and then you go out to the opposite ends. Berger only got 51% in the in the portion of Monroe. That's not a helpful thing either. So you have to run away in Erie County where, there, where a, a good chunk of the voters are. It just didn't happen. Um, and, I mean, you look at name recognition. You know, she was already on the ballot for Amherst Councilwoman, and you, you would think this would run up better, but – Again, you know, Trump being on the ballot is an unusual thing. I wonder what the results for Trump versus Biden were in the town of Amherst, because that might have done some damage there. Trump certainly helped Wrath in Genesee County Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe even this portion of Monroe. It's not just the city of Rochester uh, there. I can't I don't know exactly what it is, but it's some of the 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 more Republican leaning areas. Well, and it didn't help Berger that she only had just the Democratic line. Um, she she didn't have working family. She didn't have independence. Um, so being just on one line in a fusion voting state is going to hurt you. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the working families line might've netted two, 3%, maybe more. I don't know the, the WFP voting patterns in that area, but you know, you look at the blank section of this 5%, according to the state board of elections left the ballot, you know, the, the blank for that race. And that is, that's kind of wild. That's six thousand people. So you wonder what they did, um, and what any what issues there might be, and maybe Berger catches up on uh, uh, with some of these absentees a little bit. I don't think it's enough to to win that, but it's a that's a tough district to crack. And you know, Ed Rath's got name recognition in his own right. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, well, uh, it's not his name, but it is his name that's on the Rath Building in downtown uh, Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Brian, we're big proponents here, of course, of voting on the Working Families Party line. So I thought it was really interesting for this race that she didn't get that line. Why might we see working families back away from a race like that? Um, I, I'll say this much. I don't know the details of why she wasn't able to hold the line as far as having the ballot access. She did have the endorsement of the folks in the Working Families Party. They did encourage their party members and, and other progressive folks uh, to vote for her in the race. I wa- I think it was uh, there was an issue. Don't quote me on this, but I believe there's an issue that was COVID related, where they were working on getting the signatures and they didn't, and they were disqualified for some technicality or not meeting a minimum standard somewhere. Um, I don't know exactly what the details are there, but there was a petition going around that was disqualified. That's my understanding of it. But she did have the backing of the folks in the Working Families Party. They just didn't have a line open up for her. And, you know, that might have made a difference. But if, you know, if you're a typical WFP voter and you know how your line works, you're just going to jump over to Dem, you know, if that's not there. And if you know the line's been stolen by a Republican, you see this happen not in Erie County so much, but in Niagara County and some other places where the the Republicans register people in that party and they try to, to steal it for the Republican candidate. Um, we can talk about the 63rd district. And again, another, it's another 10 second recap. Um, Senator Tim Kennedy want to be mayor. Tim Kennedy, um, 
was totally unopposed. So he wouldn't happen to net 100% of the vote. Um, good for him uh, running on the Democratic Working Families and Independence Line. Yeah, we've got a bunch of assembly races here. Now, we, yeah, we have a bunch of assembly races. We'll start with the 140th, and that's with uh, Bill Conrad versus Bob Pecoraro, Robert Pecoraro. Um, this was one that I, like, when I was driving home on election night, um, WBFO was trying to tell me that Pecoraro was ahead, and I was shaking my head saying, there's, there's no way. There's just absolutely no way Pecoraro was ahead. Um, and I got home, and I, I checked on the Board of Elections myself, and Conrad had won it pretty easily. Yeah, he did well. He, that's a 15-point win, maybe more. Uh, kind of resounding, considering the kind of mailers that the, the mailers that were being sent out against him. They hit him repeatedly on this cash bail. And in his town, on town of Tonawanda board, um, following Chris Jacobs' lead and some of these other folks, they called for a one-year delay on the implementation of bail reform. Um, this was pulled in Chittawaga, too. I was the only council member on my board that didn't vote for the item. Uh, but to ask for a one-year delay on bail reform. But Conrad voted no on a delay resolution that was put in. Mm-hmm. And that that was made, you know, his opponent brought that to the voters' attention, and it, he was getting hit repeatedly on that. Um, and it, it, it didn't cost him the race by any means. He did really well. Part of it is having that independence line, but part of it is the, the folks in Tonawanda, if they're registered Democrat, they're staying on the Democratic line. Uh, so the Trump effect, you would think it would hit a town like Tonawanda like it has Chictawaga. It's apparently not doing it in quite the same way. But I'd be interested to see the presidential breakdown just in the town. Yeah, and it's interesting to see in that particular race, there was, there was a, a, a Green Party candidate who pulled yeah. 1.6%, which was actually more than Conrad got in the independence line. Um, the Green Party pulled more by itself. Uh, uh Conrad pulled about five and a half percent of the the votes on the working families line, which is a pretty good poll for the working families line. It's not a line that usually pulls that high. Yeah. What race do we have next, Jim? Uh, well, well, we're just going to go in order here with the uh, assembly race. So we'll go to 141st. This was uh, Crystal Peoples, Crystal Peoples Stokes versus no name Sean Miles. Um, and it went about the way you thought it would be. Re, you're not looking at the numbers. I am. What do you think Crystal was able to pull off in her race against a Republican in her district? So Crystal People Stokes is an institution of Erie County politics here, and people know her and people love her, and justifiably so. And she she only had the dumb line. She did not have any other lines. So I'm going to say, I'm going to give it like a 60-40. 89 to 11. Oh, dear God. <laughs> And part of what happened there is the registration advantage. I mean, it's probably it's probably 80-20-90-10, somewhere in between those two. So yeah. you're starting there. And you've got Republicans that are depressed and aren't going to show up and vote. Um, and, you know, I don't know the kind of campaign that, that Miles ran. You know, full disclosure, um, he's the father of, a, of an old friend. Um, so I was surprised to see him on the Republican line, quite frankly. I knew he's a more conservative guy, but... Uh, of all years, you know, um, but still he pulled in nearly 3000 votes and, um, maybe that's due to the Republican line. Maybe that's due to his connections in the, uh, the local entertainment world through years of work. Um, but it's, I don't see how a Republican wins in that district. Like, you know, what's the, what's the long game there, you know? No, I mean, I, 
that that is the, the type of district where you are running just as a favor for somebody in the Republican line. Um, you, either you're going to get something out of it, you're going to get a job at the Board of Elections or something, or you're doing it because you're doing a favor for someone. You're not doing it because you think you have an actual shot at election. Yeah, I, and maybe it's a true believer situation. I honestly don't know what was going on there, but you know, I, the result was to be expected. Right. Um, next, we got the 142nd. Where uh, our boy Pat Burke with the Democratic Working Families Independence Line uh, pulled you know, between election night and early voting 52% of the vote against Matt Sikowski, who's had the Republican and conservative lines. Um, full disclosure here, uh, as we've said in the past and we said in our pre election, uh, Pat's a friend of us, a uh, friend for all three of us here on the podcast. Uh, I know he's a friend of yours, uh, Brian. Um, but you know, again, this is not an unexpected result. If anything, it was actually a little bit closer than might have been expected. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the independence line in this race, and I know you didn't have a major party candidate between Dem Republican that was also on independence. But I figured the independence line would have done better in this race, and maybe that was the fact that Brock Pierce was actually repelling people. Mm-hmm. You know, if it were Kanye West, would would Burke have gotten a thousand votes in that line? <laughs> Who knows? But, it may have. Yeah. It was just looking at the, the day of voting, you know, I expected Burke to, to fall a little short on election night itself, but he did really well in early voting. I mean, he's got a he's got a rough district there in the sense of, you know, winning 60-40 victories comfortably. Um, you know, Orchard Park's about even, but it's trending blue. He's got West Seneca which is fascinating if you're if you're a politics nerd, just to pay attention to what's going on there. He's got South Buffalo, and folks there are unique, you know, and they're very independent in their voting patterns, and Pat's a good fit for this district, but, you know, it's a little close for comfort, I figured. Uh, but, again, you got the absentees, so, right. you know, he's going to run away with that, that lead a little bit, bit better. And to Pat's credit, I might not have agreed 100% exactly how he did it. He went on offense uh, with this cash bail situation. He had an answer for it. And that's I didn't see that anywhere else. He had an answer for it on something that he was doing. And his opponent was BSing on on, on the intent and all that behind it. It doesn't matter to me. And, you know, I know the guy well. I know he means well. I know he's actually working on it. But he had an answer for that. That's exactly what you have to do. Well, no, and, I agree with you 100%. He, he would have done worse. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, this, this is what we talked about earlier and, and we're about to talk about now in the 143rd is that not having an answer for this cash bail thing, not getting out there in front of it was to the detriment of the incumbents. And we're talking about the 143rd now, and that's where Monica Wallace, where, you know, on our our podcast where we, we talked about the election beforehand, I questioned why the Republicans were spending so much money on Frank Smirchiek. Um, I thought that, you know, this was a race that Monica would run away with and that if they were spending money on it, they were wasting money that they could have been spent uh, elsewhere better. And despite, you know, how well Monica did at early voting, Frank Smirchiek did the second did incredibly well on election night. And as of right now, has a 52-48 lead. And we're looking at, can absentee ballots pull it close enough? Yeah. And, you know, you go into, um, go back two years ago, um, 
Wallace won the race by 10 points, 55-45 against a Republican. That Republican won the town of Lancaster, um, and she won Chittawaga. I, I, I would, if you, I don't see the break, they haven't seen the breakdown yet for the towns, but she had to have won Chittawaga uh, over Frank. You had that council race in the town of Lancaster that was drawing people out, and you know, if I'm able to look town to town, you know, looking at the town of Lancaster's vote, it looked like they were a an outsized portion of the total vote. Like, you you know, probably a two to one split between Chituaga and Lancaster. Two thirds of the voters live in Chituaga, one third in Lancaster, just roughly. And they looked like they were 40 percent of the vote. So that was part of the issue. And then you've got Dems in Chituaga. I love my town. The folks here, in, in much like um, much like South Buffalo and some other places, they're very independent voters all across the board. If somebody says they're a Democrat, they could be anything from the far left end of the spectrum to a Republican registered as a Democrat to vote in the primary, a very conservative person, everybody in between. So I mean, that's that's part of the issue at work here, too, is that, you know, I'm looking at the vote breakdown at the end and how Frank came ahead on Election Day. He might have gotten more Democrats than the typical Republican candidates going to do in other places because of part of this party realignment. You know, outside of the Chittawaga is one of the poorest cities in Erie County. I believe it's I, I do believe it's the poorest in terms of per capita income. I could be wrong on that, but it's definitely bottom three. It's just the way the demographic changes are going. So, I mean, it's it's part of the party realignment that is happening. And I wouldn't chalk it up to saying you have a bad candidate, Monica Wallace. I think she ran a solid campaign and, and did her best with the situation she was dealing with. But, you know, he was knocking doors. Uh, he was getting well-funded, like you were talking about. And he was putting out these mailers that were reigniting the culture wars. It wasn't just the um, cashless bail. It was immigration and a bunch of bullshit with that. This nonsense with, uh, with uh, you know, with abortion and protecting the right to life. And he doesn't clearly define that. And no opinion on late-term abortion, of course. You know, mm-hmm. he knows best. Um, but those mailers really had an impact, and you know, it probably swayed some votes. It probably depressed the vote. Otherwise, it's just—it's not one thing that went wrong here. It's just five, six, seven, eight different things that didn't all go the way you know the Democrats were hoping here, and it all added up to a situation where I think Wallace is down two thousand three hundred twenty-four votes right now. She's pretty much got to pick up 90, 85% of the Dems, split the the non-Dem Republican voters even, and she can afford to lose all the Republicans. It's possible to win this race, but a lot has to go right in those absentees. Right. I mean, and, you know, I mean, you know, is this a sign of, like, how strong the conservative line is for a, a party? I mean, Smircheck picked up, like, 8% or Smircheck or however you say his goddamn name. Who cares? Um <laughs> picked up like 8% of the vote on the conservative line. You know, is, is that a testament to how strong that line still is? Um, they're lot, they're going to be spot D now. Working families is going to be C in the future. They out statewide working families outperform the conservative party on election day. So that's good. But in Chittawaga compared to some other places, it does have an outsized influence. You look at how the conservative line did in, uh, in, in Assemblyman Burke's race. It was roughly the same. When you go over to Conrad's race, it's 6%. Right. You know, you go and look at the conservative line in 144, it was 14. You know, and we jump back into a, a race in Amherst. We'll talk about that in a bit. 
less than 7% of the conservative line. It does have an outsized impact over mm-hmm. years. And you've got candidates at the town level that'll run with the conservative uh, line when they run their races. And it was in Lancaster, too. You got to keep in mind in 143 at Sheetwell and Lancaster. And you guys have a you got you've got a Democrat supervisor down uh, over over in Lancaster because he had the conservative line. Right. Um, if he didn't, his opponent would have won. Correct. Um, and it was a one point race. Right. Like forty nine and a half to fifty and a half. Right. Just like the council race. I mean, I, I, I like watching Lancaster for the, the horse race of it all. They're very close races lately. They've been yeah they've been very close races lately, um, and it's it's a town that's skewing more Republican more conservative. Um, let's talk about the one forty six real quick. Um, that's Karen McMahon's district. Karen McMahon won re-election um, over Robin Wolfgang and over Ruben Cartagena. Uh, Ruben being on the green line and pulling a whole one percent of the vote. But um, this was a race that if, if you were watching the results online and you got yourself antsy about things, you might have got antsy about Robin Wolfgang. You might have been, when 25% of the vote was in, I believe online, you were checking the Board of Elections website, Robin Wolfgang was winning. And if you got yourself all worked up about what results looked like at 25%, um, you might have got yourself going, oh, well, Karen McMahon's on her way out. Um I was a little more confident in waiting, and I felt rewarded in doing so. Yeah, you've seen the numbers already, and McMahon's ahead um, between early and day of voting together. She's got she's got a lead of, I want to say, 1,700 votes. And I'd rather be the Democrats and Karen McMahon in this race than be in the Republicans of Wolfgang. Mm-hmm. Because look at the outstanding ballots, uh, 16,500 and change, about 17,000. 9,000 are Democrat ballots, 3,600 are Republican ballots. And Amherst is a town that is skewing more Democratic. Those Democrats, you know, Wallace is counting on 85% or more to stay on the line, and it's quite possible. That's going to happen in the 146. They're not jumping away from it. You, you know, the, the type of people that are voting on that line there are these middle-class folks that have become repulsed by the national Republican party and are moving over. You know, I think that's a big trend that you're seeing in Amherst. McMahon's going to win the race. She's only going to grow her lead. And there's 4,000 other ballots. Even if uh, the Republican is able to take the majority of those, there's so many democratic ballots that she's going to be fine. Brian, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier and I'll admit I haven't been following either uh, the smear check Higa Wallace race or the uh, the Wolfgang or the Cartagena McMahon race or whatever with bated breath, but you did mention something uh, which I thought was very interesting was about the mailers, and I know like a lot of our listeners, I will be inundated with these political mailers, and I'll see them and I'll look at them and I'll be like, okay, and I'm somebody who's interested in the politics end of it too. What what do we think is like? I don't want to say the importance of it, but does do these mailers really have a, as big of an impact on these elections and these races? Like as a local elected official, what is your take on, hey, people get mailed, do they just chuck it or does it actually have an impact on these races? Uh, you think about how the typical person reads a mailer. There's three different levels of it. You've got the pictures, you've got the large font, and you've got the fine print. So most people are going to take this and look at it 
They see the pictures, large font, and they say, oh, great. They toss it in the garbage. This person voted for this thing. You, you, you throw it out. The, you're only going to get a sliver of people that are really reading every word on these mailers. So if negative mail didn't work, people wouldn't use it. It really does have an impact. So if you know an issue is really polarizing and hasn't been sold well to the public, you know, you're going to mail against it. And the state Republicans, it's like they ran the same blueprint all over Erie County. They said cashless bail, the stuff on, on, on undocumented immigrants, and, you know, we'll use whatever other culture war issue we could mail negative against everybody. So everybody was was defund the police communists in these mailers. They hit. They hit um, Wallace and TV ads with this. They hit Bill Conrad with it. Um, I don't know if they did that to Burke, but they were definitely getting Burke on cashless bail, just like the other two. Right. Uh, and I mean, that's part of what got it close. You know, these races so close. It's just the same blueprint of negative campaigning against all the Democrats. And it didn't matter if they voted for or against something necessarily, or they had certain nuance to their positions. They all got hit with the same stuff. Well, we're going to talk about just one last assembly race before we call it a night tonight, um, and that is the 149th, and that's you know our boy John Rivera versus Joe Totaro, um, which more so than any, when I was driving home and the and WBFO was using the State Board of Elections uh, erroneous data, and they said that, oh, Totaro's got like a 60-40 lead over um, John Rivera, and I thought... Totaro doesn't have a 60-40 lead over Rivera and his own family, let alone, like, in the actual ballot. Um, and as of Election Day, uh, it's 62 to 37, 62.3 to 37.7, um, for Rivera. Um, John is uh, notably the son of Niagara District Councilman David Rivera. Um and he will be the first Hispanic American from upstate New York to be a member of the uh, state assembly or state senate. Yeah, it's, this isn't an outcome that that I expected, and I, I didn't have a predicted percentage. But you know, I, I knew Rivera was going to do everything he needed to do to pull together stakeholders and, and, and people in the Democratic coalition to get out there for him. You know, um, the district is favorable to Democrats. His last name certainly helps, and it's not about being a legacy candidate. People know, you know, people know uh, David Rivera, so you've got that working too. He had the independence line that gave him about two percent of the vote. Um, the Republican didn't have a conservative line over there. Not necessarily that would have mattered in the 149th. You know, right. that's a, you know, Sean Ryan had that district unlocked as a Democrat. You can run just the Democratic line and win. You take a look at the percentages. If Rivera ran just as a Democrat, he wins the race with 53%. Uh, and again, I mean, it just every, all the conditions were in his favor, and I'm sure he had the resources for a good mail operation and whether phone banking and the other things he might have done to, to pull that off. And admittedly, I didn't uh, pay uh, intense attention to that race, but you know, it, it seems like he did everything he needed to do there. Yeah, I mean, and. and- the only local race that we acknowledged um, beforehand, well, besides the Mike Cole race, but that was for fun, um, uh, before the election was the town of Lancaster had that council race to fill a vacancy, um, whereas Mike Wozniak versus Don Gachewski. And you know, in that race, I don't know if you saw this, Brian, but uh, Wozniak 
pulled about 11% on the conservative line. He had the Democratic, conservative, and independence line. Um, yeah. And yeah. With, without the conservative line, he loses. Mm-hmm. And then that's a, that is a difference maker out there. Um, in it's, I mean, I, I don't know what it exactly looks like in West Seneca, West Seneca either, but maybe that's the conservative line actually working uh, voter rolls out there, growing the voter rolls. Maybe it's the type of person that lives in Lancaster that's considered themselves an independent, conservative-leaning voter. Who knows what it is, but that is unusually good performance, you know? Um, but that's going to be the difference maker in all these races in the future. And you'll see in a place like Newstead, the conservative line was uh, with the Democrat there. You see that in Chittawaga. But in a lot of these state races, Republican conservative are paired together. Mm-hmm. Uh, conservatives are very much deal makers in their county chairman, the state chairman, and who they give their line to to, to get as much power as they can. Yeah, absolutely. Folks, thank you for joining us with the Square Podcast. And I, I want to editorialize a little bit as we wrap up, as we sort of bask in the afterglow of Joe Biden's win. I know we all want to, as Twitter says, go back to brunch, but this is where the work begins. And it's more so than a lot of things that are going to happen at the national political level. It's really going to be the state and local level where things like cashless, cashless bail will affect your life day to day. And this is where the sausage gets made. This is where stuff happens. And as we saw in this election cycle and over the course of these four years, we saw this fervor, this political energy. And I don't want to see that dissipate once Donald Trump is out of office. We have a lot of work to do and knowing what and who is involved and what's at stake, knowing the local and state politicians who are going to be the ones that we need to hold hold account, accountable for to make our country, our state, our region better. That's why we're doing this. It's not, we're, you know, I mean, a lot of people, you might get that mailer and say, what the hell is this and, and be done with it. But I think now, as we're seeing, it's not just a matter of, well, Donald Trump is bad. It's, <laughs> hey, there's a whole infrastructure at the local and state level that's supporting him and what can we do and who do we need to watch out for? Yeah. Let's keep this momentum going. You know, uh, progressive policies are popular nationwide, you know, polls have shown that. So don't, don't listen to the hype that we've got to move to the center here. It's uh, and to be aggressive, to be front facing. I mean, I think we saw Brian, you mentioned that like with Pat's race that he came out and he was really on the front foot about cashless bail Something that we can he agree. Had rebuttal. Yeah, he was. We can agree it's a net good, and we knew that they were going to come after him for it. And so he said, "Okay, I'm going to have that answer ready." And I think that's the recipe, guys. It's if you have something that you think is worth fighting for, go out and fight for it. Be ready to fight about it. Yeah, got to be prepared to, to, for it. To, to, to Ryan's point on progressive policies being popular, you look at the bail propositions all across the country. Uh, in the state of Florida, they voted 60-40 to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Right. Um, Trump won Florida. You know, marijuana legalization in Arizona happened. Biden barely won Arizona. He's going to. Uh, but marijuana did very well there. Marijuana legalization in Montana, even in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. 
you can go through a list of other ballot propositions with Washington, sex education, same-sex marriage, uh, abortion, all these other things. The progressive positions won all over the place. But you've got people that are – they get paid to be stupid. They get paid to say stupid things, to miseducate people, to misdirect people and say don't get too much into the weeds or into the issues or into policy. And then yeah. – you know, you wonder why people are losing races. Congressman Jayapal from Washington today was on NPR, um, and this is Saturday. And she said that the folks that were in in swing districts as Democrats on the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, they all won their races. Yep. The people that lost were too quiet about things. Right. No, it, absolutely. And, and the, the, ones, the ones who decided to be mute or 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 quiet or centrist about things lost the, all the the competitive races and the ones who were in these so-called swing districts but embraced the progressive ideals and loudly espoused them won well and i think there's a temptation to put those things in a category like oh the leftists want this and the truth is when you talk to people and i'm sure this has been reflected in your experience brian as an elected official it's not the leftists want this. It's people want these things. Normal people who might not consider themselves remotely political will say, yeah, it makes sense to have marijuana be legal. Or, yeah, cashless bail makes sense. But if you don't... Or, or health care. Or health care. A plethora of things that get classified as progressive because... Frankly, not enough people are on the front foot making that case because if you go out there and make that case, then when those negative mailers go to the people who they've targeted to rile up the right folks, you're going to have that rabble of people. You'll have all the people who are saying, well, wait a minute, it's common sense. Yeah, I mean – I say, you know, in this in Chituaga, you know, I got the town board on effort in support of the New York Health Act and essentially single payer health care system. You know, I talked to folks about it at community meetings, explained the budget advantages of it. And even if they're relatively conservative, that they're open to hearing it. Some of them are convinced, you know, mm-hmm. there's overwhelming support for something like that. A $15 hour minimum wage is something that does is, is right. people aren't fighting that body cams, all sorts of stuff that on a case by case basis, you're able to pull people in. Uh, and I mean, for my personal experience at the local level, I mean, a lot of the stuff we're dealing with is just basic. It's, it's town stuff. It's not these big national issues, but I'm able to work with people that know where I'm coming from, and we have some of those disagreements, but we find common ground and how to deal some, with something like fair and equitable assessments. I worked with some conservative Republicans on making sure we were able to implement that, and people that disagree with me on everything except for that issue, but they were appreciative of uh, being able to sit across the table with somebody that they saw is an adversary on 99% of the issues, but I was with them on this one, and you know we got a lot of good done there. All right. Uh, Councilman, where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me by my first and last name, Brian Nowak, on Facebook. I am on Twitter. Um, I don't even know my Twitter off the handle off the top of my head. We'll, we'll find it. <laughs> yeah. We'll, find, we'll, we'll find it and link link you. Uh... There we go. Yeah, feel free to feel free to add, follow. I'm, I'm not, t- not too much of a Twitter guy. Uh, president's cut me away from it. I'm half kidding. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm big on Facebook. You know, half the time it's memes, half the times it's essays. 
you know, you got to have some fun with it. Right. Um, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google. You can find us on Twitter at SquarePodBuff. Um, you can't find Re on social media at all right now. Not anymore. I broke, like I said, I broke the fast for like a 24-hour <laughs> period, and then I was like, oh, this is much. garbage. This is terrible for my mental health. I don't want to be on the internet. So you can't find me right, or you can, but I'm not trying to be found. Ryan, where are you at? Uh, oh, uh, the real Ryan Steele on Twitter. And I'm at James Tamel on Twitter. Once, once again, thank you, Brian Nowak. We'd love to have you back in the future. Uh, you're a great guest today. Thanks for a great conversation. It's a lot thank of you. fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks.